Well, you're watching The Lie of the Land with Kevin Ling's Chief, Chief Economist at Stan Lib. And uh, Kevin, we've got quite a lot to discuss today. I have billed this show as the ability to get the lowdown in half an hour on all the economics that you need to sound intelligent around the dinner table. So that is our task at hand. And the first thing I think people know vaguely about is that the Fed made a decision yesterday on rates and uh, you're going to give me the lowdown and what the undertone is because all the business news presenters talk about the undertone, you know, what was actually unsaid at the Fed. Yeah, hi, Bronwyn. So, yeah, that's 100% true. It was a huge uh, meeting in terms of expectations about what the Fed would say. And obviously, at the moment, there are two areas of focus. The one is just interest rates, and there's no change in interest rates. And it's very unlikely that they'll change interest rates anytime soon. By anytime soon, I mean within the next six months. Beyond that, it's anybody's guess, really. And remember, the interest rate in the U.S. sits somewhere between 0% and a quarter percent, which is pretty much the lowest they've ever had. So interest rates unchanged. That's not the focus. The focus is around quantitative easing, essentially the Federal Reserve printing money, although don't tell them that. They don't like that idea. But they're printing money, creating money balances, and they're using that money to purchase uh, U.S. government bonds and what's called mortgage-backed securities. Now, they purchase approximately $120 billion of that stuff a month. That's a huge amount. So that's a constant liquidity injection into uh, the U.S. economy, and they've been doing that for some time. And they do that in order to stimulate economic activity. It's part of monetary policy nowadays. And obviously, it helps uh, financial markets, as we can see. And what the Fed uh, announced last night is that they're now going to scale back those purchases. Effectively, what they're going to do is reduce those purchases by $15 billion a month, every month. So it's now, now, Kevin, we need to pause here. Because this is the term that everybody refers to as tapering. This, this is enter the tapering phase, isn't it? That's right. So tapering is just a fancy word of saying scaling back or reducing. Uh, but they're systematically reducing or tapering the amount of assets that they purchase. And what, what is important, I think, to recognize is they're going to do $15 billion as a reduction the first month. Then the second month is another $15 billion on top of the initial reduction. And if you keep doing, you keep adding $15 billion every single month, then by the time you get to the middle of next year, then you're not doing any additional QE. And at that point, they would then say, we have completed our QE program, and the well, focus would then shift easing, to interest rates. Easing. Yes, quantitative exactly. easing. And they would then have said, well, we finished this now, and so the focus will be on, okay, now do we start to have to increase interest rates as part of this ongoing normalization of uh, monetary policy? And really, I mean, what the, the Fed has been trying to do is create a soft landing with the economy by really just putting the money out there, as you said, printing money, making sure that everyone feels as though there's enough money in the system, there are no shortages. It's a flush with money, so to speak. I mean, that's really what they're now trying to reverse. And that's why everyone's also worried about inflation and saying, listen, 
they've actually left it too late to pull back on that easy money. Would that be the, the right statement? That's right. So that's the undertone. So the focus is, have they made a policy error here? Have they provided too much stimulus for too long? And the consequence of that is inflation. And if inflation now becomes embedded at a much higher level, then it changes the game dramatically. In other words, the Federal Reserve will, will start to panic a bit, start to feel, gee, we better do something about this inflation. They would then start to raise interest rates more aggressively than what the market is expecting. And that's where the key risk is for the financial market, because given valuations on U.S. equities, given that equities have gone up for such a long period of time, an aggressive tightening of interest rates could then result in a significant sell-off of U.S. equities. So that's the bit that we worried about. Now, in order to get a handle on whether that's going to happen or not, what you've got to try and understand is, is inflation in the U.S. going to be a problem or is it, is it what's called transitory? In other words, is it really just temporary? It's going to come down as the global supply disruptions um, improve and as the U.S. Uh, reduces their quantitative easing, will we see inflation roll over? And if inflation rolls over, geez, the markets are going to do even better. Why? Because then you realize the Fed doesn't have to increase interest rates all that dramatically. And the message to the market is easy monetary policy pretty much continues on. So this is a critical uh, factor to the outlook for the financial markets. And what you're trying to detect here is not, is not the announcement, but when the Fed discusses this, when Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, discusses this, what is that undertone around inflation? Is he actually more concerned about it than what the statement appears? Or he's, is he genuinely relaxed about inflation? And if you listen to the press conference last night, it became clear that he's less convinced that inflation is transitory. He's still saying it's transitory, but his tone and the and the language being used suggests their risks. This thing could become a bit more embedded, in which case the risk around this has, in effect, gone up. Now, that doesn't mean the financial markets are worried. The financial markets are taking Jerome Powell at face value at this stage and saying, well, he doesn't seem to want to put up interest rates dramatically anytime soon. The tapering of, of quantitative easing is going to take some time. So, gee, this is still good for financial markets. But in the background, what we worry about are what are the risks that are building up about a possible policy error from the Federal Reserve? Where do you lie in this equation? Do you think that the, the Fed has misstepped in terms of what they've done to this point? Too much easy money and they've let the party get out of control. Yes. So I'm, I'm in the camp that things, inflation is more persistent or more permanent at this stage than transitory. And the reason is that there are elements of U.S. inflation that have started to increase that are unrelated to global disruption. So there are a couple of things. Housing, if you look at rental inflation, which is the single biggest component of U.S. inflation, that number's moving up very steadily. And that's partly related to house prices and the easy money environment. So I'm worried about rental inflation. And, this, and the second element of this is I'm worried about wages. So if you look at U.S. wages, the, the most accurate measure of wages we get on a quarterly basis, it's a difficult thing to measure 
very accurately once a month, but we got the data last Friday. So just and that's the month farm payrolls. You always have that number coming through. No, so that's non-farm payrolls. Is we focus on the unemployment rate and how many jobs are being added, and it does have a wage component to it, but it's not the most accurate measure. The most accurate measure is only comes out once a quarter, uh, and that's called the employment cost index. Employment cost index, and that number came out uh, just happened to be on a Friday. Uh, a week ago, and that number has increased at its fastest pace in 15 years. And that was right. the first very clear, unequivocal indication that U.S. wages are going up. And the reason we worry about wages is obviously if people are earning more money, they're going to keep shopping, which means shopkeepers can keep putting up prices because they know everybody's got even more money. And so it can allow inflation to become embedded. So I'd be concerned at this stage. So we've got an interest rate decision looming here in South Africa in this month of November. What is going to happen in the South African space? So when it comes to South African interest rates, obviously in the ideal world, what we would want to do is only focus on South African economic conditions, but that's not our reality. Our reality is we are a small open economy. We're massively impacted by global capital flows. And that is impacted by changes in global interest rates. So already um, we follow about 20 emerging markets. More or less half of them have started to increase interest rates. So emerging markets are moving interest rates up. South Africa obviously hasn't. At the last meeting we voted, the MPC voted unanimously to keep rates unchanged. But given that the Federal Reserve has put a clear signal out there that they're starting to reduce this monetary stimulus, emerging markets have hiked interest rates, that puts pressure on the South African Reserve Bank. Now, that doesn't mean they immediately hike. They have to look at our domestic conditions. Unfortunately, think about it. Food inflation is at 7%. The petrol uh, price has just gone up, one rand 21 a litre. That means petrol inflation is more or less 34%. Electricity inflation is 14%. We've seen some more pressure on wages, some strike activity. And so you can see in our data that our inflation numbers are going to the top end of the inflation target and are not going to be as comfortable around the middle point at 4.5% that the Reserve Bank was talking about. So the risk for us is very clear. 18th of November, our Reserve Bank is forced to respond a quarter percent in interest rate not because they think a quarter percent is going to change the petrol price. But what they have to worry about are two things. Is the currency going to keep weakening and it's under pressure and putting up interest rates will help the currency? And the second thing is, is inflation broadening out in South Africa and do they have to react about that? And so a quarter percent would signal that um, they're trying to keep inflation under control. They're trying to get some money into South Africa to help the currency and that may be the start of our interest rate hiking cycle. There's no need for them to be aggressive on the rate cycle. They can be fairly slow and watch what's happening internationally and watch what's happening to inflation. But I think the thing has changed for South Africa. We are now going to start to enter an interest rate hiking cycle. But isn't it too early? I mean, is the South African consumer not too fragile I mean, given our lockdowns, given what has happened to the hospitality industry, for there to be the vaguest 
move upwards in, in interest rates, even if it is, you know, as you say, a, a quarter of a percent. So that's 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 exactly the counter argument. This economy is incredibly weak. It's it's had a difficult third quarter. The fourth quarter hasn't been great with load shedding. Um, the consumer is under significant pressure. What the hell are you doing putting interest rates up? You're just adding to the difficulty South Africa's facing, and it's a very valid argument. The problem for the Reserve Bank is that they, they've got this mandate of wanting to keep inflation inside the target, and specifically 4.5% is what their model is calibrated to. So have a look at what their own model was saying about interest rates at the last MPC meeting. Their model said, their mathematical model, said that interest rates would have to go up every quarter for five quarters in a row if they want to keep inflation at 4.5%. So already before the petrol price went up, before the currency weakened, before the, the Federal Reserve interest rate meeting, their own calculations were telling them that they have to consider pushing up interest rates if they want to achieve this inflation target. Now, since then, things have deteriorated. There's no doubt inflation is going to be higher than they expected. So do they back away from that target? The risk for them is that if they back away from achieving that target and they simply say the economy is too weak, we're going to back away from this target, what then tends to happen is people in their mind adjust the narrative to say, the Reserve Bank's happy with inflation being higher. They're not worried about it. They're happy with inflation being closer to 6%. And before you know it, 6% is then de facto the target yet again. Wages are going up 6% or higher, and you start to embed inflation. So inflation expectations and how monetary policy responds when inflation goes up is critical. So I'm not saying it's an easy decision by the Reserve Bank. And I'm not saying they're going to, uh, you know, they're going to encounter some political fallout as a consequence. But we know that, that the, the South African Reserve Bank Governor, Lesetje Khanyaho, I mean, he talks his book the whole time. And inflation targeting is something that he is not going to steer away from. And this has been and, and 100%. Each other day. I mean, 15 years of inflation targeting. So we've been very successful in inflation targeting, and there's no doubt it's it's uh, put us in a very good position. Every single time the credit rating agencies review South Africa, the one positive they always have is monetary policy. The Reserve Bank, the independence of the Reserve Bank, the adherence to the inflation target, the Setsha doesn't want to give that up, right? And he will also argue, rightfully so, that if you allow inflation to ratchet up, even from 4.5% to 6%, that does more damage to the consumer than simply hiking interest rates a quarter percent. You actually pick I mean, the, the, the reality, less of the and, two evils. I mean, the reality is when I look at inflation, it's about the devaluing of your money. So effectively, you can buy an item, a similar item, but you have to pay a lot more for it because the, the currency has devalued. I don't you must as economists have a better way of describing inflation, maybe the basket of goods scenario. No, that, that's pretty good. That's good. <laughs> no, so 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 <laughs> think Okay, so, I'll take it. Yay. Think, <laughs> I did so think, think economics about the difference. You, <laughs> you see, it shows it just it's clearly there. It's you can't oh, you can't great. avoid it. Um, so, so Bronwyn, think about this. There's a difference between measured inflation and experienced inflation. Now, let me just quickly explain that if I can. 
When you think about the goods you encounter every day, what are those goods? There are two things in this country that most people encounter every day. Food, the price of food, and the price of transport. And for most people, that's what governs their cost of living. Not the price of a used car or a new car. How many times do you buy a new car? Once every, what, eight years? So what yeah, inflation is for new cars, you don't know. And nor do you care because you're not going to be buying a new car. So we find in South Africa, the factors that are pushing up inflation are the factors that people experience every day. The factors that are pulling down inflation are things people only encounter infrequently, but are in the basket. So take the inflation rate if you buy a fridge, you buy a washing machine. That inflation rate is pretty much zero. In fact, you can get it negative on a special, right? But people don't buy fridges and washing machines every single day. They buy food and they buy transport. And so that's the reality. People are experiencing much higher inflation. And it does a lot of damage to people in the country. Now, you could argue that pushing up interest rates adds to that. Undoubtedly, I agree with that. But if the Reserve Bank doesn't do anything about this, inflation will have a tendency to keep ratcheting higher and inflation will do even more damage over time. Right. Now, let's move on to another theme that everybody is talking about, has been talking about, and then suddenly it's gone quiet. And that is China and Evergrande. Uh, this is the debacle in the Chinese real estate environment. And uh, Kevin, you know, it looks as though we've had this discussion often. The Chinese government is just not going to let this company fail because it will be a disaster and they will keep kicking the can down the road. Well, I guess they can. The Chinese government certainly has the money if they want to do that. So Evergrande, uh, just to recap, massive property developer in uh, China. At one point, they were employing over 200,000 people. They had more than 800 construction projects on the go at any point in time. This is a massive property developer that uh, got highly indebted, over $300 billion of debt, and simply debt they couldn't afford and they can't afford right now. And obviously they kept hoping that they'd be able to build property, sell property, get money in and get on top of the debt. But as it turned out, they simply uh, kept extending uh, the level of debt and they, they are, for all, all intents and purposes, they bankrupt, right? They can't service this debt. Now, there have been at least three coupon payments that they've missed on the debt, not the, not, the, not the bond itself, not the actual capital value of the debt, but the interest payment. They've missed those. And uh, that obviously was what caused the extreme anguish. In terms of the rules, you get a 30-day grace period. So once you've missed the coupon payment, you've got 30 days to, to make it. Otherwise, you are declared bankrupt. And what has happened is on all of the coupon payments they've missed, uh, they got the 30-day grace period. And then right at the last point, the last day, they made uh, the coupon payment in order to avoid the actual default. Now, those coupon payments amount to a couple of hundred million dollars. Obviously, what we don't know is where the hell did they, <laughs> where did they get the money from suddenly? Because... 30 days ago, you didn't have the money. 30 days ago, you couldn't pay the coupon. Within 30 days, you now got the money and you can service the coupon. So the inference being drawn is that the Chinese government has quietly uh, provided them with finance somehow, and that's allowed them to effectively avoid a default. 
They've got further oh, payments. The reality is it's more than an inference. It's a very straight line to the Chinese government bailout. I think that's the reality here. It's just as you know, how far they're going to go because Evergrande, is, as we know, is not the only Chinese real estate company in trouble. So does this mean they're going to start bailing out every Tom, Dick and Harry? So that's the difficulty because already the real effect of Evergrande is it has significantly hurt the Chinese property development. Uh, property prices have come down. The amount of activity in the housing market and property market broadly has fallen off. It's causing pain in terms of the Chinese economic growth story. And obviously, the Chinese authorities need to resolve this because property remains a key component of their economy and the way in which they've driven the economy. Now, that doesn't mean they want to reward excesses and and bad behavior. They, they definitely don't. So they want to try and, I suspect, clean up the property sector. But you can't clean it up by causing outright chaos. That That's counterproductive. So I don't know. The future for this is a little bit unclear. Evergrande has a huge amount of debt that falls due over the coming months. And, and, if, and if the government's going to bail them out, it's not just going to be a couple of hundred million US dollars. It's going to be a couple of billion US dollars. And, and that becomes much more significant. And there will be bigger questions being asked of the Chinese authorities as to what is your plan. And then on top of that, there are other companies, not just property developers, there's a whole range of what we call state-owned enterprises, or even private sector businesses that are highly indebted, that have grown very fast, haven't grown sensibly, and are also facing potential um, debt defaults. And so, you can see that China over time is going to have to find a way to, to restructure some of this, to, to make it more palatable. Otherwise, you're going to find many of the big businesses ultimately defaulting, and that's going to be quite uh, hurtful. So when you stand back you from China... Hurtful, I mean, the other thing, you know, if you're sitting around the dinner table and you hear Evergrande Chinese real estate, a lot of people are saying, well, this could be another global financial crisis, the size of Lehman Brothers, you know, we go back to 2008. Is that a, a scenario that could potentially come to fruition? Yes, so it's a distinct possibility. People have compared it to Lehman Brothers as during the global financial crisis that you that this that Evergrande is effectively too big to fail. You should really support it, not because you like Evergrande, but because of the damage it would cause. And potentially uh, you allow the business to fail and it starts to unravel many other associated businesses, including parts of the financial system. And that would be chaotic, not just for China, but for global economic sentiment. So there are real risks around this. Evergrande is that big. So the Chinese authorities would know that, and obviously they would want to try and manage that as best as they can. And the fact that they've made these coupon payments, albeit late, suggests that that's exactly what's happening. I don't think the Chinese government is going to want to brag about bailing out Evergrande, the way <laughs> Lehman Brothers was bailed out in a very, in a very, um, not bailed out, but the, the post-Lehman Brothers that bailout um, was very visible as the U.S. Uh, government had to put a huge amount of money into the U.S. financial system. I don't think the Chinese authorities want that because it's counterproductive politically, but it's very possible that they recognize that Evergrande shouldn't be allowed to fail and potentially other companies also shouldn't be allowed to fail. So I'm going to bring us home now uh, as we go into 
the last five minutes, and that the local government elections and the impact that that potentially will have on economic growth in South Africa. In a lot of territories, we have seen the ANC losing the substantial majority. We have seen Action SA, Herman Mashaba in Johannesburg doing really well. And there are going to be quite a few coalitions, it appears, in, in a number of the different wards. Talk to me about the implications of an election like the one that we've just been through on our own economic growth. So, so Bronwyn, there too, there's a positive potentially, <laughs> a positive angle to this, and then there's potentially a very negative component. The positive, let's focus on that initially, that would be where the ANC, which is still um, the dominant party and is still going to be in charge in, in most uh, municipalities, and even if they're in coalition, they may well be the senior partner in the coalition. This may be a very valuable wake-up call for the ANC, which they take to heart. They don't try and spin it. They try, don't try and explain it away in some abstract way. They recognize that their loss of support has got to do with uh, the fact that they haven't provided service delivery, that you've had too much corruption, bad, all kinds of bad administration, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they reflect internally on this and they come back and say, let us now do better in a genuine way. And there's a meaningful uplift in uh, the services provided by all municipalities, particularly the metro areas. So that's entirely feasible. Um, I'm not sure that you'd bet on that because I'm not sure there's been enough of a change in the dynamic of municipalities as there has been within the direct leadership uh, of the cabinet and within the direct control of, of the president. So I think that's a way off, but that's a potential positive. The, the, the more concerning negative here is we don't do good at, uh, well at coalitions, right? Most of the coalitions we have have failed, uh, and, they've, and the result is that those areas have become less effective because you just can't get proper decision-making, you're not making decisions timelessly, etc. Now, many of the big cities or the big metros are going to find themselves in some form of coalition, and some of those coalitions, in, on, on the face of it, the logical coalition would be the ANC and the DA. The problem is that the ANC and the DA, if I look at them functioning within central government, they don't get on. If you look at their various uh, committees within parliament, those committees break down very regularly. So, so it, it's a long shot to assume that this co these coalitions are going to be effective and are going to be able to deliver a better service. So my net take on this is while it's a wake-up call for all political parties to tell all political parties that they've been doing a bad job, I worry that the coalitions are going to result in constant messy decision-making, constant inability to put forward key uh, reforms within that municipality, key investments, key service delivery, and that over time we're going to be even more disappointed with the outcome. And then obviously we're going to get to the next uh, national uh, election and we could find a whole lot of things start to emerge at that point. So I'm net-net concerned about this outcome because I, while while you would argue that yes the ANC shouldn't be rewarded for given the job that they've done it leaves South Africa in a position where it's going to take a miracle for us to improve service delivery in the key areas. 
So, I mean, this is rather gloomy dinner table conversation. We've got interest rates going up. We've got a potential global financial crisis in China. The local government election is negative. Inflation is going through the roof. Is there nothing that you can leave me with just as a positive as we close out? There must be something positive happening. The markets markets are loving this. If you look at, have a look if you invested or have a look if you put your money offshore. Have have a look at what that's done. If you put your money offshore in global equities, you're okay. South African equities have done better and overall the returns, not bad. So so I think what what we've got to constantly recognize is that elements of the financial markets, you know, have, have done exceptionally well and that that not every economic data point, not every economic event is market changing. And 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 the net result of the discussion with the Federal Reserve and their press conference was US equity markets actually quite liked it because it didn't feel like interest rates are going up anytime soon and it's not an imminent and dramatic change. So I think that the net effect of this is that financial markets are still doing okay. Let's hope that the politicians get this wake-up call and they try a bit harder in a genuine way. All right. Well, we will regroup same time next week for 30 p.m. Central African time for Lie of the Land with Kevin Lings. And of course, we're going to make this the half an hour that gets you to be the superstar at the dinner table. There will be nothing that is discussed on the economic front that you cannot add to. How about that, Kevin? You're taking on the challenge. Only, Only a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you very much. Kevin Lings, Chief Economist at Stanlib, and that was Lie of the Land.